You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Erasmus Stylianessis. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 41 of Here for the Truth. As always, I'm Joel Rafidi, and this podcast is co-hosted by a friend here in LA. Erasmus Stylianessis. <laughs> As always, for any divination needs, please head to my website, joelrafidi.com. If you're after specific human design readings or if you're in the LA area looking for some body work, um, please reach out to Erasmus. Today, we have a very special woman indeed. Her name is Jenny Morton. And let me tell you a bit about Jenny. After a long career as a ballet dancer, musical theater performer, actor, and singer, Jenny recognized the need for specialist care for the arts population and became an osteopath specializing in the field of performing arts medicine. She spent 10 years as a clinician at the British Association for Performing Arts Medicine and co-created a master's degree in performing arts medicine at University College London, training graduate medical and healthcare practitioners in the specifics of working with artists. As a keen observer of human behavior, she became fascinated with the interplay between emotions and health and furthered her training with a master's in psychology. Now based in Los Angeles, her practice has a strong focus on psychophysiology and behavioral health, exploring the links between habitual thought patterns and the expression of physical symptoms. She is also passionate about empowering individuals to a deeper inner standing of the self in order to create sustainable, dynamic and regenerative health. Jenny holds certifications as a clinical anxiety treatment professional, a mental health integrative medicine provider, and is also a certified heart math practitioner. She's written many articles that have been published in medical journals and arts publications, and is the author of three books, including The Authentic Performer, Wearing a Mask and the Effect on Health. Jenny is also a performance coach, helping artists with technique optimization and connecting with authenticity. As a vocal health specialist, she helps individuals connect their authentic voice for optimal self-expression. A passion for unified physics, sacred geometry, and the physics of consciousness underlie all of Jenny's work. She believes we all have a collective responsibility for what we put into the field. So she helps individuals tend to their own soil to ensure whatever they contribute to the world will be of the highest nutritional content for all. Wow. Jenny, welcome to Here for the Truth. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, you know, I'm so blessed we met, what was it, a month, month and a half ago through a mutual friend and we live in the same area and I've, I've been blessed to, to work with you. It was just one time, but you, you had a major impact on me and some headaches that I was dealing with. And uh, just happy to have you here and your wealth of knowledge. And I'm, I, I'm so excited. Like, it feels like Halloween today, even though I don't really celebrate it, where it's like, I don't know what treats we're going to get, you know, with <laughs> the dialogue, with that. Yeah, yeah, or tricks with the bio <laughs> and everything, you know, I'm just really, really excited. Um, do you have an, uh, you know what, I want to start off, I want to start off here. I want to start off as a, a, a performer, as a musician, you know, as that being, you know, the early part of your life. What was it that got you then to to go down all these different rabbit holes? Like, tell us a little bit about your journey in major rites of passage. Let's start there. 
Okay. Yeah, I've been down a lot of rabbit holes or black holes if you're talking about <laughs> physics. Um, and and they're not the dead end as we as we've been taught. So um that's another story. Uh but yeah, I you know, I grew up in the arts. I come from an arts family. My mom was a royal ballet trained dancer and had her own dance studio and I so I was, you know, apparently I did my first ballet class when I was 14 months old because as soon as I was on my feet, I was joining in. <laughs> Um, and my dad was a TV director at the BBC and, and so most weekends we were all up at the BBC as a family and I was in TV studios for rehearsals of, you know, big primetime um, shows that my dad was working on. And I, I just had a, a, a kind of deep curiosity about behaviour right from an early age. I think, you know, I came into this world kind of going, huh? so what's this all about you know I just I never quite felt like I fitted here and and I always have this sort of detached curiosity about what this is what's going on and obviously being around artists all the time and and you know I was in tv studios with what was sort of very well-known personalities of the day and I knew what the public perception was of those people and people would say oh wow you know so and so oh I love them and I was thinking mm, you know not quite the side of the person that I see on the other side of the camera and and so I got this idea that people are not always what they promote themselves to be and that you know someone that was you know such a funny amazing character on tv could actually be quite a horrible person and you know yelling at everyone in the studio and um, and then there were other people who were, you know, obviously a quivering wreck before the show went on and, and uh, but yet were, you know, the, the epitome of confidence on screen. And I realized that all of them are terrified, whether they're bullying everyone, whether they're sort of arrogant and being narcissistic or whether they're terrified. They, all, they were all terrified. Um, so I, I just used to observe all this going on. And then I worked myself in the performing arts from a very early age. I did my first film acting job at five. And then from the age of seven, I was at a full-time theater art school. And from the age of eight, I was touring. I, I got a child role uh, in a ballet with uh, one of England's largest ballet companies. And I spent five years doing London seasons and, and, and being on national and, and international tours. So I was with this sort of adult uh, professional artists from a, from a young age and again seeing all the behavioral interplay um, so so I'd already become a student of human behavior right from then um, and I think the arts is kind of like a magnification if you like of what a lot of people do in their regular life they go to work and they play the role of a lawyer or an accountant or whatever but actually they're like oh it's not really who I am um, so, so that was kind of the behavioral aspect. And then as a, as a performer, as a dancer, particularly, you, you get a lot of injuries, bodies, you know, the body is your, your um, instrument. And so you are very dialed into the nuances of, of what's working, what's not working. And so I had this sort of inherent, inherent sense of that. Uh, but actually, when I was 17, I, I was at dance college and, you know, a year out from heading off into the profession. And I had horrible shin splints, which, you know, if anyone's had them, pretty painful. Um, and I literally couldn't dance. I could barely walk. And so I was sitting out of all my classes and not knowing what to do and thinking this could be the end of my career right now um, before it's even started. 
and one of those serendipitous moments, a, notice, a, a poster went up on the notice board at college and it said a final year osteopathy student who is a former dancer is doing a thesis in shin splints in dancers and Whoa. needs case studies. And I was like, me? Wow. So, uh, cos so cosmic wink, one of those cosmic, cosmic winks. Wink. Totally. So I was like, yeah, sign me up. And so I would go three times a week to uh, the British School of Osteopathy in London and work with this final year student. And she would have all the sort of junior students in observing um, her sessions as well, because when you're a final year student, you know, you get you get the sort of the, the students below you coming in observing. And literally in the first session, she picked apart all the stuff that I was doing in my dance technique that had led me to get this problem. I thought I've been in full time dance training for 10 years by that point, and not one teacher has ever picked this up. And so I was like, hmm, I like this osteopathy thing. So it was already sort of lodged in the back of my brain. And, and because she was teaching these other students during my sessions, I was, I was absorbing, I'm a big sponge, you know, I just love learning new information. So I was absorbing all this anatomical information, going, oh God, I get that and I see what's happening here. And I was teaching, I, I started teaching dance from the age of 13 um, as well. So um, I was then bringing that into my teaching. Um, and then every show I ever did as a professional, either in the ballet company or then when I moved into musical theatre, West End shows, I always used to become the unofficial company masseur. You know, I had a kind of a knack for, for you know, working out the, the issues in people's muscles and people would be like, oh, would you do my neck and shoulders before the show and I'll give you a bottle of wine? You know, it's kind of like we trade because um, we're such healthy beings in the arts. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, so I had this kind of, you know, knack for it. And then people would say to me, you should train in this. You should do this. You shouldn't, you know, and I was kind of like, hmm, yeah, I do kind of, I am kind of interested. So I actually trained initially as um, what we call in England, a sports massage therapist. So it's not your sort of holistic beauty type massage. It's, it's specifically targeted, to, targeted towards specific injuries. Uh, so it's a slightly deeper training in anatomy and uh, the understanding of injury causation. And I used my knowledge of dance technique, of instrumental musicians technique, of vocal technique to not only treat symptoms, but also look at what people were doing technically to lead to the problem. Because there's so much in healthcare care of treating the what mm -hmm. and not addressing the why, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to address the why, otherwise the person's just gonna go away and repeat the behavior and end up with the same problem again in six months time. So you're not dealing with the problem, it's just a band-aid. So I'd started um, doing that and I was still performing at that time. So I was treating people in the day and then doing my show at night. And then, you know, with anything in healthcare, you know, if you are a practitioner of any integrity, I would suggest, the more you know, the more, well, we say the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, but also the more you know in healthcare, the more terrified you are of what you don't know. You know, I'm like, well, I know what muscles are and tissues and, and, and you know, connective tissue and ligaments and tendons, but what are they made up of? Well, what's the cellular structure? And then what's, what's the extracellular structure? And what's the atomical structure? And well, I, if I don't know what's under my hands, I have no right to put my hands there, right? So that's why I'm now into quantum level <laughs> sort of looking at that because which is where mass actually starts to disappear and you start to go what even is the body but that's maybe topic for later in the conversation um, <laughs> but 
so so that drove me to go I need to know more I don't feel I know enough and so there was that little you know as you say the cosmic wink from before about becoming an osteopath and what drew me towards osteopathy and so many dancers particularly would seek out osteopaths over physiotherapists as we call them in England or PTs um, because they took a very global approach to treatment they did look at the why they look at you within your psychological as well as physical framework and the environment that you exist in the physical and emotional environment in which you exist so it's it's a, a more global approach and so that very much resonated with me but it's a five-year degree so I had to be at a place in my life where I could fit that in Hey Jenny, real quick, real quick. Is there a di like a difference between osteopathy and like Europe versus the US? Cause like, what's the, what's a DO and what's, I'm just curious if you can kind of just talk about that just briefly. Yeah, yeah there's a big difference. So ose strangely osteopathy actually was born here in the US mm -hmm. but it's kind of been lost here. So in the rest of the world which would be Australia as well um, we are sort of an independent profession, much like PTs or chiropractors. We're not under the medical umbrella. We have our own governing bodies. We have, you know, relatively medical training. But as osteopaths, our training is all hands on. You know, you learn your anatomy on the body. We learn manual treatment. So it's manual medicine. Yes, we're looking at disease states, uh, immune system issues. Um, but we, our philosophy is that if every organ and system in the body has a good blood flow in, good drainage out and a good nerve supply, then it's a self-healing, self-diagnosing, self-maintaining system. So our job is to not fix anything. I don't like this idea that, oh, I come to you, you fix my back. You know, that's not what's taking place. I'm helping to create the conditions that facilitate blood flow in, drainage out, and a good nerve supply to let the body do its own thing. It's not for me to impose my will upon um, a body part or a body tissue. It is to, to facilitate um, uh, the, uh, you know, dynamic health state of those tissues so that they'll self-organize them. Um, and uh, I'm kind of more, more of a uh, a midwife or doula as we were talking about earlier um, yeah. in the process so in in this in the US you know when there was a big drive you know in the sort of middle of the 20th century towards you know the medical model and that anything that's a natural approach mm -hmm. because we don't prescribe medication we don't you know do uh, invasive procedures or anything we we are very much just hands-on practitioners um osteopathy kind of in the US felt I think that it needed to have more validation it didn't want to be put in the woo-woo bucket with <laughs> with the homeopathies and the you know yeah. things that have been very you know held in very good esteem but then had been you know as the medical model gained momentum and funding from certain entities it mm -hmm. was let's demonize all these uh, and other alternative therapies and put them in the woo-woo bucket so that we you know try and drive everyone towards well this is the only thing that works the the medical model and so oste osteopaths were sort of caught in this which which bucket do we go into and so they were uh, brought under the medical umbrella so in in the U.S. a DO doctor of osteopathy their training is pretty much regular medical school they do their surgical rotations or they're in 
patient hospital um, kind of stuff with a sort of osteopathic philosophy in there. And I think, you know, I've talked to many osteopaths and there are different schools. Um, some are MD, do regular MD, and then there's sort of an additional training that they do to bring in the osteopathic philosophies. The DOs, it's actually an osteopathic school, but again, it very much adheres to the medical model. And they work in the traditional medical infrastructure. So a lot of them work as family physicians so they're prescribing medications and giving injections and um, really not doing the hands-on stuff and I've had conversations with osteopaths here and I'm like why don't you do the hands-on stuff which is what we're really known for in, in the rest of the world and they're like we can't bill for it under insurance so we're back to the idea that it's the sort of the bean counters and <laughs> administrators that are dictating what is appropriate medical um, you know, practice and, and what can be practiced and what can't be practiced. So those uh, US osteopaths that do do hands-on work have to do it outside the insurance system. So it's a fee-for-service kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so that's really the distinction. So most people will view an osteopath as really not much different from their regular, from a regular doctor. So they don't really understand it as, a, as a, an independent profession as it is elsewhere in the, in the world. Yeah. Thanks for the summary. Yeah. I've, I've got to just bring a couple of things up just what? listening to all of that. Um, like from a divination perspective, it's just so classic, everything that you're sharing and, and your journey so far. So like in esoteric numerology, your ruling card is the Four of Swords from the Minor Arcana of the Tarot. And the Four of Swords is all about discovery, learning, education, institutions. And then I look at, look at it from an astrology perspective and you have Virgo in House 6. So House 6 is all about work. It's what we're like at work. And Virgo is what brings order. It's what brings details, what brings precision. It's analytical. So just the way you're absorbing all this information constantly, um, yeah, just want to bring that up it's just it's absolute classic what? just listening to you the way the way the way you're expressing everything and in my head i'm like wow <laughs> well even even uh from a human design standpoint you know you're a one three profile so the one yeah. is known as the investigator and then the three is known as the, the trial and error like learning through trial and error just experimenting and bumping into things and learning what works what doesn't work you know and so it's just like it's this process of building that deep foundation of knowledge through also just figuring out what works and what doesn't work and then moving forward in that way. So it's just fascinating. Oh, yeah. And also um, her incarnation cross is the right angle cross of laws, right? So this is literally about figuring out what doesn't work for the tribe, what doesn't work for the community, then altering the laws. So the right conditions are there for things to, to, to flourish. Um, so wow. it's, there's never a coincidence where people find themselves, especially those on an authentic path. Uh, that's it it's like you're validating me and I'm validating what you're doing I'm like yeah. the living example of what what you guys are, are describing cool. there yeah. yeah and it kind of was born for me you know this you know it's something as my cards seem to say you know I analyze everything I have to know why I was the kid that drove my parents mad by going why 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 um but this you know as I say I came into this world kind of going huh what's this all about and I always felt this slight detachment and I literally would lie I didn't sleep pretty much my entire childhood I would lie awake at night every time I closed my eyes it still happens today but as a child it was much more vivid I get what most people describe as an ayahuasca trip going on. you know people describe sort of psychedelic experiences I'm like 
I have that every time I close my eyes. Is that not normal? Okay. Um, but as a kid, yeah, every time I closed my eyes, I would literally see this kaleidoscopic, you know, like those kaleidoscopes you used to have. Yeah fractal patterns but it was all animated pixelated wow. and I would go on these whole journeys and it had auditory component to it as well and it was quite terrifying <laughs> my childhood but it was it was like where's the end of the universe if we're here you know if that's the universe what's beyond that and where do I fit and I just had this kind of connection to something beyond this so I feel like my quest for knowledge is trying to find safety, you know, I was trying to find, how do I exist? What is, I wanted to explain myself and my existence because it felt so mm. tangible. It felt, you know, like it was precarious in a, in a sense. Um, and I work with a lot of people now who are very empathic, very intuitive, and they live in this, in what I call them, in the fuzzy place, right? Am I, am I here? Am I not here? I work with a lot of people who've had, um, near-death experiences and and who who really sort of know what it is to not be embodied and to be embodied and are making decisions all the time about how do I marry those two things so I think this quest for absorbing knowledge was part of you know one thing I often say about the human body is it's either running the safe program or the unsafe program, right? If we're in safe mode, everything's self-regenerating, self-repairing, self-healing. When we're in unsafe mode, we divert resources to dealing with threat and therefore those other things aren't going on. And that's where we get into dis-ease and, and, and dysfunction. So really all we're trying to do is make ourselves feel safe, right? And so my information gathering was a means to make myself feel safe in my environment I had a lot of separation anxiety as a child you know that even going to bed at night was tormenting to me I used to terrify me that I could hear my mum go to bed and then my dad because he was doing shows would come in later and I'd hear him go to bed and I'm like I'm on my own in this crazy place I don't want to be here and I was terrified but the information helped me regulate myself mm -hmm. so we're always looking to feel safe and to regulate um and so you know when we talk today about truth and everyone's on this quest for truth and it's a they're using information gathering as a, as a means to achieve that um it's really just people want to feel safe but safe is not an intellectual process safe is a, is a feeling right it's a physical um embodiment um and so, yeah, I think that's, you know, just kind of brought up when you were talking about this investigation thing. It's like, well, why am I doing that? Yeah, I have that too. I have the one line. I'm a five one though. So one is all about seeking that secure foundation yeah. through that investigative process. So I totally get that. It resonates with me in different ways. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have kaleidoscopic <laughs> eyes at night and things like that, but you know, it definitely was wanting to feel safe. Like I know. Yeah. And I mean, what, what we're talking about really is the inherent fear of the unknown, right? Like even, even with what's going on right now, no one really knows what's going on, but even within the truth community, oh, if I have, if I believe this piece of information, or if I believe this narrative, or if someone can explain it this way, then all of a sudden there's something known, which I can pretend to stand on for a little bit of time. But at the end of the day, we don't know anything about anything about yeah. anything, right? Nothing, yeah. nothing, you know, it's, you know, even, well, I know I'm here. Yeah. Well, 
know, <laughs> in that for a moment, you know, I'm here, where is here? You know, yeah. is it a yes coordinate? Well, who am I? You know, when you look at the gut microbiome, the oral microbiome, the skin microbiome, we are more other species than we are us, right? We have fewer human cells than we do all these other cells. You know, we look at the mitochondria in the body, which are the little kind of battery generators that do energy conversion for us in our cells. And each cell, I mean, you know, liver cells can have, you know, a couple of thousand mitochondria within one cell. And we've got several trillion cells in the body. Mitochondria have their own DNA. They're parasites. They're not us. They are a separate entity that's come into symbiosis with us. So I'm a collective, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not a thing. I'm not one being, you know, I work hands-on with a body, but it's just a, a, a collection of, of creatures, you know, I, I, um, and often they're, they're, they're constantly changing and constantly rotating. So really like, you're not, you're not even the same moment to moment. Not you know? no, nothing's the same. We get a whole new body every few months, right? Everything's turning over. And then when you even look at matter and mass, well, <laughs> we're not actually <laughs> mass We're we are, you know, people, you know, look at sort of atomic or subatomic le le level and they're looking at particles and like they're a thing. Particles, I have this wonderful phrase that came from one of the faculty members of the physics uh, stuff that I study. Particles are a behavioral event. So they're not, they're not stuff. We are just, um, a behavioral event within the field, you know, and then what is the field? Well, it's like water, um, you know, is a fish aware of the water it's swimming in? Mm. Right? We're just swimming in a field, but it doesn't feel like there's anything there. But if you then get a, um, in the water, if you get like a vortex, right, around your plug hole or a whirlpool or something, suddenly that you can feel that, right? There's resistance, there's a gravitational, there's a resistance. And then as you get too close, a, a gravitational attraction. So then you think it's a thing, but it's really just a swirl in the field. And when you look at unified physics, which is looking at how do we um, uh, correlate the quantum level with the uh, sort of Newtonian physics, classical physics level, because as we all know, the classical physics model breaks down at the quantum level. Um, unified physics seeks to unify across all scales what's actually going on. And when you look at it from a perspective of field dynamics, it is like a fluid flow and that we are just a swirl within the field that makes us feel like we're tangible but we're essentially a black hole, right? Um, and where we exist is sort of on the event horizon of the black hole, which is where the information is, right? And then we tend to exist here and look at what, what everything from us to infinity, right? We think of everything that expands outwards from us, the universe, the multiverses, whatever, to infinity. What we don't consider is that there's the equivalent amount of infinity from our event horizon inwards mm. right so when i've started to visit that with 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 the sort of unified physics model and you start looking at the the particles and the 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 
behavioral events of the field going to infinity and how it is infinitely small within us and we're the midpoint between the two but we're all about what's happening out of here and we're not taking care of what's going on in here um then you 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 again are sort of changing what is the concept of me where am I in all of this and then you put sort of consciousness and and uh, a soul or whatever on top of that um so so yeah I mean this is <laughs> these are the kind of rabbit hole black holes I yeah and I mean as the as as the great hermetic axiom says as above so below as within so without um and it's all it's almost like what you've done which is a a, a very logical way, approach from from my point of view is exploring the macrosm by understanding the microsm like you've gone so detail oriented towards what's the, the the smallest particle towards the, the inward journey the physical right and in doing so we can understand the universe by understanding right. the, the our, our inner physiology our the, the inner laws that rule our, our, our vessel here in whatever this existence is yeah and that's what the unified physics kind of model describes is that when you look at the the geometry and the mechanics if you like of of the black holes that make us up of which there are infinite number everything repeats at scales you know the 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 universe is like a sort of series of nested russian dolls with the mm. same patterns repeating at scale and what um so the work that i i've been studying is the work of the physicist nasim haramein um mm-hmm. and he's just about to publish a paper that literally provides the equations that unify everything from the subplonkian scale so we've got you know proton atoms that are made up of protons the protons are made up of what are called Planck spherical units and there are 10 to the 40 that's the one with 40 zeros after it PSUs these Planck spherical units per each proton body and then there's the subplonk level which is the equivalent between a subplonk and the plonk is the scalar the scalar equivalent is us to halfway across the universe you know so this is the depths of infinity you go to in the small stuff and he's got equations that basically unify the physics right from that subplonkian level right through to universal cosmological level so you can look at a spiral galaxy and it has the same uh, structure and geometry as all the the spirals of the subplonkian little uh, you know events that are happening at that minuscule level they're just repeating at different scales. Um, so that definitely is that microcosm versus the macrocosm. It is all the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's you know just mind blowing when you start to look at that, but it's also so simple. Yeah. <laughs> you have to kind of go to the complex to find out it's really quite simple. You know, I wanna ask you this, um, because we're primarily the other, you know, when we list this, the microbiome and the, or everything, we have all these bacteria and other particles and this and that and fungi and parasites, like this obsession with fearing the other, like, oh, now this thing called, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, trying, I'm trying not to use these code words on here, you know, especially <laughs> in the first part, but this, this thing that everyone's been taught is like the most dangerous thing against humanity, which I, I mean, from what I've read, it hasn't even been figured out to be a thing you know so like what i just like what just talk about that a little bit like what are what are your thoughts on even that like 
I'm just yeah, curious. I mean, for me, it's, you know, um, it's about resonance, harmony, um, you know, when we are talking about um, a parasite, a bug of some sort that's in the field and that, you know, again, most people have this idea it's attacking us, you know, we're always sort of anthropomorphizing these yep. things to, to, you know, well, they're attacking me. You know, the osteopathic thinking is not that something external to us attacks us, it's our duty to have a vessel that can come into harmony and resonance with any uh, visitors from, from outside of, of our localized field. And if we are unable to do that, then that's our responsibility. It's not its fault for, for attacking us. It's whether we're, we are in a state of coherence that is able to adapt. You know, we talk about, you know, survival of the fittest, the sort of Darwinian model. Again, it's, it's, there are behavioral kind of edicts that are put into that. Oh, well, it's dog eat dog. It's a competitive world. That's not how nature works. It's a collaborative model, right? Um, so it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the adaptable. So how flexible are you um, and can you shift and adapt? We're doing that on a minute by minute moment by moment basis all the time you know if the temperature suddenly gets too hot in this room we can only exist between a very narrow temperature range in the body so our system is going to automatically start to adapt to bring our temperature up or bring it down depending on environmental conditions so we're in this constant state of adaptation and our ability to survive is directly correlated to our ability to adapt you know which is why a young kid who's of vitality and health and adaptability flexibility in the body they can break their pelvis and get over it in the matter of a few months an elderly person who has less adaptability is more rigid less elastic less flexible that could kill them right mm -hmm. because they're not able to adapt to it so you you even see that with with children, even just emotional flexibility, like you see a child who's just like goes from literally looking like a psychopath and then a second later laughing. Hey, that's everything's fine. It's just like this dance between emotion. And it doesn't it's not like five minutes later, they're thinking about that moment where they were a psychopath. You know what I mean? Where they wanted to bite someone's ear off. They're just like, OK, great. There's a ball and a, and a, and a lake and I'm going to and some mud. I'm cool. You know what I mean? It's just like this this dance. And, and, and I think. Well, you say that emotional flexibility and, and physical flexibility is such a good, is such a huge piece of your work and and your knowledge. So, I just I'd love for you to just keep talking about that. And uh, how do we how do we maintain that? Like, what, right. what are some of the keys that you've you've discovered? You know. Yeah. Well, for me, physical and emotional flexibility go hand in hand. You know, they mm -hmm. are one and the same thing. And so, you know, obviously, I'm working hands on with a lot of people. So, t the state of somebody's tissues is is there under my hands and it doesn't lie right you can tell me whatever story you want to tell me with your words my body the body is gonna your body is gonna tell its own story and I often feel that my role in that process is I translate what the story is telling to you if you're not able to hear it if you're listening through a different lens and you're not hearing the clear message that's coming through I often you know when I'm working on 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 people's bodies it's often like I, I feel like the body going oh god someone's listening <laughs> thank you it's and then I can translate that for people so 
when you think of emotional flexibility, we come back to that idea of am I running the safe program and I, am I running the unsafe program? If I'm safe in my environment, I can be flexible, right? I can let anything come at me and I'm good with it. I can be in my juicy kind of self. If I'm under threat, so if we think of, you know, sort of primitive humans living under constant threat of a predatory attack, when we encounter a predator, we we have to become rigid, right? We have to develop a shell. So we will take on a posture, our, our, what's called the sympathetic nervous system, which is that fight or flight system, sets certain uh, uh, processes into motion when we are perceiving some sort of threat. And one of those is it's going to create muscle tension, right? So we're ready to run or attack that's this thing. But what will also happen to the fascia in the body, so the fascia is a connective tissue that literally coats everything in our body. And we have many, many layers of it. But in particular, we have a layer beneath the skin, what's called subcutaneous. And it's very much dialed into our emotional states because when we're under attack, we need to create body armor, right? Because we might be physically attacked. So we need to create a shell around us. Um, so when I'm working on people and I can feel, and, and you know, as a, you know, a hands-on practitioner with very refined skills, you can tell the difference between what's fascial tension, what's muscle tension, you know, different tissues have a different palpatory uh, kind of, uh, sensation when you're working on them and you can often or I, I, I tend to have a good perception of what is emotionally driven tension in the body and what is I just you know ran a marathon yesterday mm -hmm. <laughs> my body's kind of freaked out and again that's just a protective mechanism when the body goes holy hell what just happened right mm -hmm. um, so the physical and the emotional are the same thing that they play out in the tissues of our body so therefore, when I'm working on tissues, people, people come to me and say, I want you to get rid of this muscle tension or you know, what they perceive as muscle tension, which often, more often is actually fascial tension. Um, but again, we come back to this question of what and why, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it, I, I perceive it as arrogant as a practitioner. If I go, well, I'm just gonna beat that tissue into submission with, aggressive massage techniques or people that use these fascia busters and think you know these mm -hmm. tools to attack their body tissues um if you attack a body tissue you're going to get a defense response it'll initially surrender so often you go oh i feel really loose after treatment and the next day you're stiff again right because the body went what the hell did you do to me i'm going to have to defend myself again yeah. um yeah. so the body is so intelligent i mean it's way more intelligent you know there's a difference between intellect and intelligence right the body is highly intelligent most of us have intellectual thoughts that we impose on the body and assume we know what's best if a muscle or a fascial area is tight the body has a jolly good reason for it being there right yeah. it is doing it po possibly to stabilize an unstable joint that might be over there underneath there so if I, as a practitioner, come in and go, oh, this is tight, I'm going to beat that into submission, take that out. Well, now you've destabilized the joint that, that that tight muscle was protecting. And so guess what? The body's going to go, oh, that's wobbly again. Let's lock that up again, which is why people say, I you know, have a massage, feel great. And then, I, and then two days later, it's back again. And you're just in this to and fro thing. And the same with an emotional state. If I just come in and beat 
the fascia into submission and, and somebody goes, oh, now I feel like a limp noodle, I feel great. But you haven't addressed the behavioral pattern that was driving that need to protect oneself. It's just going to come back again. Um, so you have to address the, the, the why, not the what. And mm. so I'm not going to take away something without replacing it. So if there's an unstable joint under there, well, let's find a way to stabilize that joint. Then that muscle doesn't have to grip. Similarly, with emotional fascial protection mode, if I just take that away, but we haven't addressed why do you not feel safe, then it's just going to come back. So whether it's a, a physical instability or an emotional instability that's driving that tissue tension, you have to deal with the why and, and make sure you're putting, you can't take something away in the body without putting something in, right? Um, so that's, again, a lot of the missing piece when people go for treatment is they're not, uh, not asking the right question and they're not replacing something uh, if they're taking something away. Um, so that often means we have to go quite deep and and we have to find you know coming to your question joel about well, what do we do about it if we're talking about um not feeling safe you know which is anxiety you know all, all of those kind of ex emotional expressions that might manifest in many different ways overly aggressive aggressive anxious you know they're all just fear-based responses people don't feel safe so when you boil it down to that we have to teach for a lot of people we have to learn what safe feels like because you know it's not a thought it's a feeling and a lot of people are just like I don't even know what safe feels like in my body how do I get there so that's a process we have to go through for for finding a tangible sensation of safety in the body so that you can then dial that up at any given moment mm -hmm. it's always in your toolkit um, either to preempt a situation that you know is often emotionally triggering for you or to be able to uh, redress uh, uh, an anxious expression. And again, you know, a lot of people will say to me, I want you to get rid of my anxiety. I'm like, no, you don't. It serves a purpose, yeah, right? The body yeah. knows what it's doing. What we're talking about is if, is that uh, expression of anxiety either appropriate to any given situation or proportionate? You know, if you're sitting in your bedroom stressing about a job interview the next day, but there's no physical threat in your environment, it's not appropriate for you to be like, oh, because you're not under threat. Um, but if you step out into traffic and a car comes out of nowhere, you want that system to come online and pull you out of there. So it's a, that's, a, that's an appropriate expression of, of that fear response. Um, so when we understand those distinctions and we understand what does safe feel like versus this unsafe feeling, then we can start to be more discriminate and proportionate with our responses. But it's like anything in the body, you've got to train it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's the interesting thing, too, when you think about, um, you know, what a person went through in their childhood. You know, if, they're, if their foundational environment was like chaotic and the opposite of safe, like it's, it's so important to, to do that work. But initially the person, when they first, this is what I find, maybe, maybe it's uh, different in your experience. Like when they first get a, a, a taste of what that feeling is, that can be more destabilizing because they're used to the chaos. Like right. the chaos is what's comfortable to them. The drama is what's comfortable to them. And so it's just, it is this slow process 
of, of, of doing that work and being with the person and, and slowly allowing them to feel that it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's an interesting thing when you see people like, why do you keep going towards that, that chaotic, abusive relationship? And then it's like, oh, well, you know, this person was like their mom or their dad or the environment they grew up in. So it's, it's just fascinating to think about. Yeah. And what you're talking about there is, is, you know, I was talking in very simplistic terms about this safety idea, but like you say, for people whose only experience has been of that chaos, there is a conflation between safety and familiarity. So we are rewarded as, as, as children in particular, we are, you know, we're all about survival, right? We are a species that cannot survive as a, as a young uh, member of that species without parental help, right? Some animals are born and they're immediately skipping off and, and being independent. We are wholly dependent on our parent, our parent or caregiver for our survival. If we're left on our own, we don't make it. So therefore our biology is very much uh, programmed to bond with the caregiver and to keep them safe at all costs. So we, when we're around the caregiver, we create dopamine and all these kind of reward chemicals to make to reward us for being close to that person who will keep us safe. And when we're away from them, we get the anxiety response to tell us, don't do that, go for this. So we are chemically being, you know, Pavlov's dogs being conditioned uh, for these responses. So when you get this mismatch where a caregiver who should be providing your safety and security is doing the opposite and is destabilizing you, you have this cognitive dissonance of this person is trying to keep me safe. Therefore, whatever they can do no wrong, right? So as a child, you cannot have, you cannot have a belief system where the care, the person who's keeping you safe can do wrong because that's gonna threaten your survival. So therefore you go, it must be me. So that's where we get the shame and the blame coming in. Uh, but also we, the anxiety response we feel around the caregiver, we're also getting this conflation where, well, that is familiar, therefore it's safe. Because if I'm around that, this is the person who's supposed to keep me safe. So feeling this anxiety must be safe, right? So it's this, it gets very complex as we, as, as we get into these kind of um, layers. So therefore, you will always go towards what's familiar because the chemistry has been skewed between safe and unsafe. So if you're used to abusive behavior, it feels familiar to you. So you'll keep going towards that even at a subconscious level, even though mm -hmm. consciously you might be like, no, your, your biology is rewarding uh, being around an aggressive person or being dominated and, and you being submissive within that relationship. So this is where that conflation occurs. So if, if somebody has those sort of triggers going on, we have to look at reprogramming the nervous system um, and putting new labels on the safe and unsafe and the familiar versus the unfamiliar so that they're more, again, appropriate uh, labels for those sensations in the body. Um, so like taking this concept to a collective level, the primary care caregiver for most of us was the schooling system a lot of the time, right? I mean, we spent 15,000 odd hours being molded by these government institutions um, where we're 
we feel, I guess, quote unquote, this is familiar to us. Um, we taught and indoctrinated to obey and to comply and by obeying and complying, then we're not going to get in trouble and therefore we're going to be safe. Now, all of a sudden we're living in this time where the, the government is telling us to obey and comply so you can be safe. And I think it's then we can begin to develop reason as to why some people might be so hesitant to step out of line when they've now adopted the government as their primary safety or their primary caregiver on, on, on some level. Yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, behavioral programming is so powerful and it's something, you know, I've been looking at in myself for the last couple of years and really picking apart Ooh, is that programming or is that really what I believe? And, and, and it's, it's hard and it's, you know, it's confronting at times. You're like, holy hell, I've been thinking that all the time. That's just a behavioral program. I don't really believe that at a cellular level. Um, so yes. And it's this sort of hierarchical structure that's been, you know, imposed again on, on, at all scales in society, starting with, with schooling, um, and, you know, certainly my training, I, I work a lot with arts training, right, um, which can be very abusive, you know, in a well-meaning way. Well, it's a tough profession. So if we don't beat you into um, submission, you're not going to be tough enough to survive the profession, um, which is completely <laughs> goes against everything we know about psychology and how we actually create um, self-worth and self-value. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a whole uh, host of things that we're exposed to as children that 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 take away our sense of agency, our sense of I have some control in this, that I am completely dependent upon everyone around me telling me what to do. And I think, you know, it's become worse with the advent of social media and, you know, you know, we see, um, you know, there are studies with children you know we were talking about chemical bonding right you get a, a reward chemical for being around your caregiver and a, an anxiety chemical from being away from them children now have those chemical bonding uh, mechanisms uh, programmed to their devices so their devices have become their parent and their caregiver when you get you know I always say to people I work with a lot of people on on uh, social media or device addiction and um, when you get that got to check my phone, got to check my phone, which is happening how many times a day for people, you know, check my messages, check my messages. That's what, what is chemically driving you to do? What, what is that? You know, it's not, you know, you say, oh, it's, it's my brain telling me, yeah, but what, what, you know, again, it's why, why, why? Um, it's actually a, a cortisol uh, response, a stress hormone being, being, you're away from your caregiver. <laughs> stress right so your stress drives you to pick up the phone or they'll go to the computer whatever the device is and then when you get the download of whatever it is you've gone to see you get a dopamine which is your happy reward chemical um feedback i've got a like i got a new follower someone sent me a message i'm loved yeah i am getting a i'm special I mean something to somebody. Yeah. So it is this. So you're in this dance of like cortisol, adrenaline. Oh, sorry. Cortisol, dopamine, cortisol, dopamine, cortisol, dopamine. And it's addictive, right? Dopamine is addictive. It's when we talk about 
chemical dependency and addiction to cocaine and things like that. It's not cocaine that people are addicted to per se. It's the dopamine response that you get from taking cocaine that you're addicted to, right? It's your own chemistry. Um, so, so people are in this chemical dance with their devices. And again, with a child, it's the same as a caregiver. So if you say, right, I'm going to punish you and take your phone away from you, they're going to experience separation anxiety, the same as if they've been removed from a parent, right? So that's why they're going to scream and shout and feel like they're being punished because chemically they are being punished for being away from their phone. So, so now we're seeing bonding mechanisms to inanimate objects. Um, mm -hmm. And with all the things that could they could be exposed to on that device, then driving even more layers of, you know, and again, all they want to know is, am I safe? And we've moved from living in communities, you know, for the most part, where you're brought up by the community and you've got the neighbours and all the relatives living nearby. And there's this, uh, you know, kind of group situation, which we are wired to keep each other safe as a group, as a collective. It's a collaboration, right? Um, now we live in these more isolated um, existences with smaller family units and even just a single parent and a child in some cases so the community becomes the infinity that expands when you go into that device right it's just like we were talking about the infinities yeah, yeah. either side of us you know there's that whole thing that expands when you go into that well and now I have community you know back in my childhood when we didn't have phones and, and all these internet and all these kind of things you know, it was the soap operas on TV. You know, my, I was in a TV-driven household with my dad being a TV director. So we were, you know, the, the conversation over the garden fence became watching the soap opera and hearing the gossip from, you know, this became our community. Um, so we've outsourced physical community for this, you know, virtual community. Uh, so but can it, I ask you something on that? Do you, do you sense there's any um, benefit to online community or to, or to virtual community? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm not one of these kind of purists. We can't have any of this stuff. I mean, look at us talking on, on this amazing device right now. You know, it is incredible, but it's like anything. Everything in moderation is great. You yeah. know, having, you know, a glass of wine is lovely, but if you have three bottles of wine, you're in trouble, right? So, and if you're addicted to having that and you can't survive without it, mm. it's a problem. Mm. So it's all again about appropriate and proportionate use of these yeah. devices. You know, I'm an English person living in the States, having internet and all these abilities to be able to speak to people thousands of miles away is absolutely wonderful. Um, but if I spend all day, every day yeah. on this and I don't ever speak to anyone in my community, not so healthy. And, and the thing is, it's like these technologies, this social, it's a tool. Now, yeah. how do you use the tool? The problem is our social engineers, the people who create this technology, they understood all these vulnerabil vulnerabilities or realities of the human psyche or like this chemical process that goes on. And so it's, they play on that. So it's like, you have to even like be even more like in tune with yourself present to be like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna use this device or i'm gonna share some information then i'm gonna go off of it you know but it's it's tricky because you know you start getting that dopamine it's seductive 
It's seductive and it's also that same sense of where do I start and it ends, you know, where do I end and it begins, um, which can happen with parents as well. You know, some people who are so like bonded with their parent, they can't then separate and then they, you know, still living at home in their 40s and unable to become independent. It's a similar sort of yeah. setup. We have to... Um, you know, but with a parent, they're normally kind of policing that situation for you and helping you to become independent. Whereas with a device, an inanimate object, it's always wanting to bring you, draw you yeah. in, it's trying to sell you something. It's, you know, it's driven by corporations who just don't really care about you. They just want to make some money, right? So um, yeah, that, that smudging of, again, the self versus the other, and that is something, you know, even though I've talked about what is self and it is a very nebulous concept anyway, we have to, you know, for me, the self is a feeling. It's a, a sense of coherence in my body. Truth for me is a sense of am I in coherence? Am I in resonance with this piece of information, with this person or this situation? Or is there something off in my system? But if you've never learned to listen to that, you've never learned to learn the language of the body then you're not going to have that tool available therefore you're just in a constant state of being pulled in all these different directions and you're much more prone to being you know sucked into an addictive kind of pathway because you don't have that point of reference you know most people just need a point of reference yeah, yeah. that is them um, so that they can judge from that place and from, from my perspective, like what you just described to me is intuition. Like intuition is simply coherence with the body and understanding what the body is comfortable with and what it's, when it, when it's not. But the, the issue that most people experience is that because they've spent so long rejecting the advice of the body or rejecting their intuition, then they go out and they make decisions. We tell little white lies. We make actions which are against what our, our inherent nature and, 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 our, and our spirit then we disconnect from that even more. Then what we find ourselves in is, is in this state where we're just grasping at anyone that's to, to, to save us and to show us some semblance of truth because we become disembodied in that process because we're so disconnected from, from who we really are and what our body's really saying that literally anything can then come and I guess contaminate our field in, in, in that way because that strength of, of connection with our intuition with our body is so frail at that point. Yeah, yeah, you're just sort of dissolving, yeah. you're decohering <laughs> into the field rather than being in this, this state of coherence. And it's, you know, you know, this is what we should be teaching in schools, right? Yeah. That for me, it's the fundamental, um, you know, uh, tool or, or sensation that can carry us through this world, you know, yes, intellectual information is useful um, to navigate this world but if you don't have that 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 point you know that compass point underneath it all of, of that that sense of self what however you describe that then you're really yeah just just in a constant sort of floating state yeah, and yeah. we talked about ad, you know being adaptable but being adaptable requires a point of reference so that you can be elastic and reach out there, but you're anchored back here and you will recoil back to center, whichever way you go from it. Yeah. Without that, you're just, you know, 
floating on the on the thermals and and being carried somewhere that you may not wish to yeah. go and this is the exact message of the the lemniscate which some people refer to as the infinity symbol right but simply that that point of reference and coming back to that sensor and realizing that we extend and then we come back and we extend and we come back and like this is this is the underlying premise of the of the universe is this is this flow you know and this is why understanding you mean the the, the laws of the universe is so powerful and impactful for everything that you do in in your life totally and it was so interesting that you bring up that infinity symbol the lemnus gate and i was up in the uh sequoia national forest i think it was september last year and you know there's so much that nature can teach us right the trees everything i was like oh i learned a whole new thing about fascia from from just putting my hands on the bark of one of these giant sequoia trees and then i was sitting watching a river a beautiful river there and I was there were all these rocks in it and there was this beautiful lemniscate pattern going on with the eddies in this water and I just sat there and went oh and I mapped I went back to the place I was staying and I got a pen and paper and I mapped that infinity symbol which is not just like a flat eight right it's 3d it's it's yeah, a that's right. yeah. whole 3D thing I mapped that for every joint in the body wow <laughs> all lemniscates and, and as you walk you know there's a there's a forward to back one there's a side to side one and then I was able to see what observing you know I spend my life observing people's gait patterns and things going oh, <laughs> that left knee. And, you know it's noisy in my head um but I could see it was like oh that person's missing the the left arc of the of the 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 eight if you like the figure eight in their hip it's just cranking from the right so if I can use that image for them to say right there's a there's a an infinity symbol going this way in your hips and I want you to find each arc of it and I felt it in my own body as well my left hip is a little cranky from my dancer days and as I was walking I was like oh I'm missing the back arc of that eight and as soon as I consciously put that in I suddenly was springing along and I was like oh this is efficient you know, I'm always looking for efficiency in the body how little effort do we need to ambulate through space right and so that infinity sign it's just so I that's a whole it's another thing on my list of things to do that I have endless things of is to really document that out and yeah I, I called it lemniscapes with a p like the scapes like and that, you know, it could be a whole new movement education um, uh, system for people that's very visual, you know, rather than saying, well, you're left, it's that, you know, it just gives people a visual to work with. And actually, I found I'd started, you know, I thought, has anybody else come up with this? You know, of course, and sort of looked on the net, you know, am I, am I is this the original thought? You know, am I grasping that end of that rainbow? No. Um, and I found a, a French guy who uses, he's got a machine that takes people's feet through this figure eight yep. thing for neurological recovery from sort of stroke damage and from movement for movement disorders and was having amazing because again it's just this inherent shape it's sacred geometry right mm. um the the body knows and you know again when you're talking about truth you know when i'm teaching i don't even like that word anymore you know i teach workshops about the body and anatomy it's when people connect with that information, you're not telling them anything that it's their body going, Oh yeah, I get it. 
I, I know it already. Everyone knows this stuff. And when you, all I'm doing is reminding. <laughs> and, and when you remind someone of this, it's like the body just goes, oh, thank you. Now you're listening. Um, so, yeah, so that that lemniscate is just absolutely, um, you know, a, a fundamental part of geometry. It's the toroidal field, yeah, right, yeah. which is the, the black holes are toroidal fields, these sort of donut shaped things. Um, and it's actually a double torus, which creates that figure eight infinity symbol. Um, and that's in our geometry. It's in the geometry of the cosmos. Um, and when we honor those things, life becomes a lot easier, mm. <laughs> physically and emotionally. Absolutely. That was so cool listening to that. Oh, yeah. And no surprise now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Facebook rebranding to Meta is kind of co-opting that entire symbol as, the, as their logo. I don't know if you oh, saw that. Right. It's, it's, it's a 3D lemniscate to indicate they're moving into the Meta, the, the virtual world, which they're going to attempt to attempt to overlay so again it's always just co-opting what's 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 innate to, yeah, to us wow. as humans yeah um there's so many directions i want to go with, with from here um i love having conversations with you i'm so happy you live close to me and we're friends um, <laughs> Man, i wish um, i lived so there, right? <laughs> Dude, Panga is, is, is amazing. Panga probably is some lemniscate vortex going exactly. on this planet, dude. Yeah. Um, all right, so you talked before about like a person getting into coherence. Now, I know it's so general and you can deal with individuals on individual level, but just like what, what advice would you give a person to be like to get more into coherence, you know, to, to be more connected to that intuition, to that, that knowing, you know, so when the world goes insane around them, they don't get swept away with it. Right. Yeah, so it comes down to listening to the body, getting in touch with the body, um, and that requires going quiet, which can be uncomfortable for people, right? People use noise and, and you know, interaction with, you know, devices and things as, as, as a safety mechanism because they, they're afraid of the quiet, right? Um, so one of the, ex the sort of basic exercises I start with with people uh, to explore this is is doing a body scan so it's kind of an active meditation now meditation is something that freaks a lot of people out oh I can't just sit and be quiet my mind's going Rrr. so using sort of active processes you know meditation is an umbrella word that can cover many different you know experiences um, so doing an active process is, is usually, you know, more accessible for people. So I, I literally have them just, you know, lie in a comfortable position and start at your feet and just check in. What can I feel? What can I not feel? What's under the sole of my foot? Does it feel tense? Does it feel relaxed? Does my, do my feet feel like they're safe or are they holding on a little bit? and then come up to the ankles, then up to the calf muscles, up to the knees, and you literally slowly go through the whole body. And people will often find an area that they're like, oh yeah, my abdomen, you know, I'm always holding in my belly and can I let that go? And oh, it, letting that go, oh, that's safe. So what, we, what the nervous system um, likes to do is to kind of chunk and label things. So if you, so if your belly is always a little tight and held, the brain will probably have labeled that or the nervous system would have labeled that 
unsafe, right? I feel unsafe, so I've got to brace. Our, our stomach is our most vulnerable area, right? If you're a four-legged creature, it's nicely protected. As humans, we brought our most vulnerable area up front and center, ready for that gut punch. So we often brace the abdominal wall to be prepared for the gut punch. So um, it becomes so subliminal that we don't know we're doing it. So when you're doing this body scan, you're literally going, what can I let go of? Is there something I can let go? Oh, I've never experienced that before. Let's label that with, I am safe. So you kind of put a mantra on top of it. I am safe. This is what safe feels like. Tighten it up. This is unsafe. This is safe. And then looking at breath patterns as well. You know, how are you breathing as you're lying there? Are you in a sort of upper chest breathing? That's an unsafe breathing pattern. It goes with the fight or flight response. Can we choose a different breath? So again, you can't just take something away without having something to replace it with. So first of all, we have to explore for that person what does safe feel like? So it becomes more tangible. So for some people, it's shoulders. Some people, it's belly. Some people, it's the breath pattern. So then, then the, you can't change anything in the body unless you're aware that you're doing the other thing first. And that's the most tricky part. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the first thing people have got to address. So if it's somebody that always has their shoulders up all the time and they've never learned to just go, oh, I've got this option <laughs> and this is safe. Um, I have them literally put sticky notes around the house on your computer screen, on your fridge door, on your bathroom mirror, wherever, you know, you hang out habitually and it just put on it shoulders or belly or breathing, whatever your cue is going to be. And so you're like, oh, oh, oh. And so you catch yourself, you train yourself to bring yourself, bring that into awareness. It's Pavlov's dogs again, right? Ringing the bell and they salivate. So it's a conditioning response. So until you're aware that how often you're hanging out like this, you're not going to have the awareness to change it. So bringing, so that's normally the first thing. Then making sure they've got an option of what it feels like not to do that. And then labeling that as a safe posture. Um, then as they've sort of trained that for themselves, you can then start putting that into the field experiment, right? And taking mm -hmm. it out into the business meeting or the whatever. Okay, before I walk into that room, because I've already done this, just thinking about it, let's dial up the safe posture and take that into the room so that the nervous system is not starting from eight, right? <laughs> We're starting at two and we've got, we've got some ceiling of, of capacity to go to. And what you'll also find, so I, you can get really deep into this with body language and what you are, you know, most of our communication is nonverbal, right? You know, 99% of it. So if you're going into that business meeting like this, you're already projecting a fear posture out into the field. And we are all hardwired to read that, right? We are designed to live in tribal groups. And, you know, if I'm sitting opposite you and some weird creature creeps up behind you, I'm going to go <gasps> like that. You're going to do that even though you haven't seen it yet because what's going to get me is probably going to get you first because you're sitting between the two of us. So we are hardwired to respond without even checking. So if somebody comes into a meeting like this, everyone goes, oh, you know, everyone's on guard already. And if you've got someone in there who likes to find their identity by dominating people, 
they're going to go, ooh, I found myself a prey. And now they're coming at you, right? Similarly, if you go in in, in aggressive mode and somebody is, is a dominator in there as well, they're going to be, well, now you're the stag's butting, right? So you've got the same problem. Um, equally, if you go in there in completely submissive and I can't make eye contact and, you know, you're going to be preyed upon. So if you can find this neutral, so it comes back to that, who am I, right? Who am I in neutral? That calibration point. Mm-hmm. If you're in neutral, you can diffuse anything that's around you because you are no longer an aggressor or a, or a prey. So your predator's going to be sort of like, they get yeah. kind of disarmed, you know, and they quite know, oh, well, like, it's very inappropriate for me to become aggressive in this situation because your body language is not allowing for it. So then you start to learn that what works for you works for the collective. And that's why I always say we have a collective responsibility to the field. And that's a lot of what's gone on in the last year or so is collective fear. You know, I'm, you know, if we, we talked about the field being like water, it's like, don't piss in your own water in your own field. So if you're putting junk out into the field, you're polluting your own field for everybody. So if you can go into the field in a very open, neutral space that has a ripple effect through those around you, and therefore you become the puppet master of any situation you're in emotionally, Mm -hmm. therefore you're always safe, right? I know that I can go into any situation, no matter how aggressive someone's being, I can pretty much diffuse it. Obviously there are times when people are off the scale and then you just remove yourself from their path, right? But on that more subliminal level, you can neutralize a lot of behaviors. Therefore, you're making yourself feel safe in the process and everyone else. So it's just less exhausting for everybody. You know, there's that word that everyone throws around. And this is what we're talking about is presence. Mm. You know, people say like, oh, you got to be present. You got to be present, you know? And it's like, well, this is what it is. It's like the ability to respond to whatever is the appropriate response to the situation you're in. The yep. most appropriate response is going to come when you're present, when you're in that neutral place and yep. you're not thrown off your center and you don't get caught up in this emotional back and forth, arguing, and yelling, because it's like someone could go crazy and you could just like talk about emotional flexibility and physical yeah, flexibility. We're most like, adaptable just, in neutral, right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah you're adaptable like, there. I call it autocorrect, you know, for people. Yeah that kind of language it's like if you've got a tall building and it's built absolutely rigid a lot you know hard wind comes along it's just going to crack and break whereas if it's built to autocorrect you can not i just autocorrect um so it's much more energy efficient in the body but it's also you know going to manage the collective Mm -hmm. uh energy around you as well yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to talk about something if you're willing to talk about it, since we're talking about structure, okay. Is um, because you have such experience of putting your hands on people and in the last, however long, the a lot of people, context, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Professional context. I mean, maybe out of professional context, you've experienced too, you know, I mean, I just say it. neutral on that. You know, there, there has been this thing lately that is the, the, um, the new mandated medicine. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious, like, what has been your experience with it? You know, um, being around people or working with people that have made the choice, you know, the personal choice to take part in that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's again, if you take it out of the, you know, language that we've put around these sorts of things and look at it again as a frequency thing, 
everybody's going to respond in different ways because everybody's coming to that with a different mindset. Some people are like totally bought in. This is a miracle thing. It's going to work for me. Some people have reservations about it and they're feeling forced to get it. So therefore they're coming in with a different, you know, we call it the biology of belief, right? Um, Our biology is set up in different ways, whether we're in alignment with something or not in alignment with it. Um, so we have to kind of look at look at those sorts of um, uh, factors when we're talking about this. Um, but in my experience of, of working hands on with people um, who've chosen to, to have it, it was, you know, co- we always say, you know, in, in research, uh, correlation is not causation. So these are just kind of experiences that I've had that have been shared by many of the hands-on practitioners that I know that we all suddenly collectively start to say, are you noticing this going on? And I haven't, you know, it's something that's happened over this time period. Um, And what I noticed was that um, it's something I was picking up with my hands, but it was also something that patients were reporting to me as well. This kind of sense of the body being a lot more kind of, almost like a sense of water retention, kind of um, uh, the, the, the sort of term people have been using and that I use for it as well is this sort of sense you've got a layer of blubber <laughs> just under the skin. Um, and as I was working on people, you know, you, you can feel the skin, the fascia, then the muscle. And between that, you've got the sort of subcutaneous tissue. And there was sort of a sponginess occurring in people who I was working on who had recently um, uh, undertaken the uh, offering that is uh, uh, being offered by the medical profession at the moment. And so it was just something I I was picking up on. And then I would find that I was experiencing that myself having worked on somebody hands on. Uh, And then I was speaking to other practitioners and I I'd, I'd started to notice this and I hadn't told anyone I was just still trying to figure it out a bit myself and then a, a friend of mine who's a massage therapist said I've been picking up on this kind of you know squelchy feeling like water retention feeling in so many of my patients and these are obviously people that we used to work with before so we knew what their mm-hmm. normal kind of tissue state was and then they're coming back having had the the um the sort of intervention and and then suddenly this change had happened so it was something that I was hearing from from many different sources and as I you know of course I have to why I have to analyze why and when you talk about we call call this the interstitial space right between the cells so we have our cells and then we have the spaces between our cells and the spaces between our cells are it's actually the biggest organ of the body, the interstitium, as we call it, because it connects everything, right? It's between everything in the body. Um, and it's kind of a fluid gel-like matrix, uh, but it's also a detox pathway. So if you've got something coming into the cell that's toxic, what the body will do, the body's always trying to protect the core, right? Because what goes on right in the core is pretty vital. We're, we're sort of built, constructed in a way that the vital stuff's buried more than the you know, and the stuff towards the surface is a little more able to adapt to to given conditions. So the body will often detox towards the periphery, right? It'll push toxins out into the interstitial and the subcutaneous tissue as it's trying to push it out of the body. So that was kind of my sense that the body was in 
some sort of detox process and trying to push um, uh, a foreign entity out of the cells. Um, and, you know, this idea of, of being able to transmit that to other people, obviously I was then experiencing that myself um, in my body. Again, I listened to so many different perspectives on this and try and pick up commonalities of what people are thinking. And one of the sort of prevailing theories is that there is some sort of expression via um, the um, kind of the sweat glands in the body that something is being transmitted out that way. And we know sweating is detox, right? So there's something that's being uh, sweated out of the body that potentially could be absorbed to someone else and then they're needing to sweat that out of the body as well so I just uh, you know started to use like Epsom salt baths and things like that to um, help uh, expel that from my body to help draw that out but also just on an energetic level again it's all just frequency um, that I would add into my daily kind of practice I have a you know if you want to call it a meditation practice but I don't empty my mind because that doesn't work for me you might be surprised to hear um I I I check in with my collective I'm like I imagine all these microbes and everything that make us up it's my collective but to me they're like the little minions from despicable despicable me you know I'm like <laughs> hey guys what did I not listen to today what do you need what's going on you know I just do a check-in and do that sort of body scan through my body um and I kind of added into that practice, I reject all frequencies that, are, that do not serve my body. Yeah. So just that sort of mantra on, on, on an energetic level saying, I do not, uh, I choose not to, to absorb these frequencies. And you look at people, um, you know, I have a friend who's, a, <laughs> he's a Swiss prince who, um, was huge in the sort of 60s in London he was friends with the Beatles the Stones that you know he's lived in Tibet and India he's done it he was like when we were having a conversation about these uh, shots as they first you know appeared and he was like we used to do snake venom laced with petroleum you know it, but if you get your frequency to a place where you're not allowing that in you can do anything you know you have these kind of gurus and people who can drink rat poison and it has no effect on them because they do not allow that into their frequency you know you have to be kind of ninja level <laughs> to make yeah, yeah of course work. we don't uh, recommend that don't go out drinking uh, rat poison okay but i i include that to the level that i am able into my kind of um yeah. self-care if you like to just say okay i choose not to uh, be in resonance with that and I choose to maintain my field the integrity of my field in the way that I feel is of most benefit to my yeah. health well I think it's a good segue into also real quickly I just want to touch on this topic because I used to do like a mantra like I raise my vibration above radiation like so like I'm I, I I'm not going to be impacted by these electromagnetic frequencies. Now we do the best we can with our home with making things to mitigate things. But I know this is also an area that you've studied and you've gone down the rabbit hole of EMFs and 5G. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that and the potential impacts on the body of an individual who isn't uh, someone who can uh, trans um, alchemize or transmute rat poison, you know, for the average person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. it's also the, the concept of what we call allostatic load in the body. So that's, um, you know, 
I live on an island where everything's clean and there's no EMF and whatever, and, and I get exposed to um, an environmental toxin, then my whole immune system is available to deal with that and it'll probably deal with it quite well. You know, if you, I, I hate to sort of, you know, reduce the body to, you know, uh, basic terms and particularly to weaponized terms. But if you think of your immune system as being like you have uh, an air force and an army and a navy and you've got all these different uh, areas of your immune system that are, are often fighting battles. So if you live in somewhere where there's a lot of air pollution, okay, so the air force are out there dealing, you know, some of your troops are out there trying to neutralize the air pollution. Then if you're drinking water that's not very pure, then you've got your navies out, you know, dealing with that. And then you've got, um, I don't know, um, you know, foods that you're eating that are not the best for you and so then your guts having to deal with that so your your immune system is very busy and then you add emf frequency on top of that and you've got no troops left is going to over you know suddenly the looting starts right because all the police are out elsewhere and there's a back door open and you're going to be overcome so we, we this is known as allostatic load in the body that sometimes so i've, I've worked with a lot of people who have uh, emf sensitivity hypersensitivity i would argue we are all emf sensitive but some people have symptoms from that right mm -hmm. um because perhaps their system it was the fight it was the straw that broke the camel's back that made them um respond in that way whereas someone else can be around it and not seem to have a problem it's a bit like the whole gluten thing you know all our bodies have a problem with gluten but if some people are generally quite healthy and they're not fighting too many battles, their body's mopping up every time they eat gluten and they're not getting symptoms and the gut lining repairs every three days, you know, so you get a whole new gut lining. So if you're able to repair, then you're not noticing the symptoms. If you've not got many repair mechanisms available because they're all fighting a lot of other battles, suddenly you start to notice symptoms from it. So it's that's, that it kind of explains why some people go, I have no problem with it other people do uh, but essentially it's another toxin it's it's um you know we we term it electro smog right you can't see it so it's often ignored from that sense but it's a frequency that is not in resonance with you know our bodies are all frequency and vibration we have an electromagnetic field or our organs have electromagnetic fields and they all resonate at certain frequencies that are measured in hertz right um and it's a bit like you remember in the old days when you when mobile phones were kind of new and if you put it down next to your cassette player or something, you know, something with speakers and you used to get that, mm -hmm. that noise so we could hear the interference in the field. Um, so that's essentially happening in our bodies. It's a frequency that's coming in and our 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 bodies are not in resonance with that. So it, it creates uh, an immune response in the body um, and it manifests in many many different ways um, the thing with with the 5g that's that's different about that it's not just about the power of the signal because people are often talking about oh it's a more powerful signal it's actually more about the pulse rate bit 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 bit, bit. so there are different um you know carrier frequencies have a different pulsation rate and again, it's that kind of, it's a bit like a pneumatic drill that just kind of goes through your body, like, oh, that's just 
you know, that vibration is really, you know, harsh on my body. It's that sort of interference, this pulsating interference that is particularly troublesome for our body. And what's been shown with that sort of level of pulsation is it's altering the, um, the membrane of our cells. So our cells have, you know, just like we talk about the gut lining, right? You can have a leaky gut when the, the cells of the gut separate a bit and they're allowing stuff in that shouldn't come in and then you're getting an immune response to it. The cell walls have the same. They have these gates that can open and shut and they are operated on an electrical uh, kind of pathway. Um, and these are called voltage gated calcium channels. So they have a voltage that opens and shuts them and allows calcium in and out of the cells, which is required for various, you know, kind of processes in the body. Um, so what happens with the frequency is it makes, it messes with that voltage mechanism and it opens the gates. Now we have leaky cells, like we have leaky guts and we're getting an increase. You then get a rush of calcium into the cell and this is caused called raised intracellular, intracellular calcium, right? And in raised intracellular calcium levels are the root of many uh, diseases in the body. Um, so we're getting this leaky cell issue, too much calcium in the cells, and it's messing with, with the basic mechanisms of many of our health processes in the body. And then what's also been shown with these, you know, kind of newer frequencies, it's also opening up blood brain barrier. So again, we have the blood brain barrier, which is another gated system and it's the most heavily guarded of the body, right? Because the brain is kind of important. We can live without various body parts, but once the brain's offline, we've got a bit of a problem going on. Um, so the brain is heavily defended, um, but these frequencies are opening up blood brain barrier. So any of the toxins, so if you've got aluminium or aluminum as you guys like to call it in the system if you've got heavy metals in your blood system often the brain that's not in the brain right because the brain's heavily defended it's being kept in your bloodstream so any circulating toxins you've got in your bloodstream suddenly now your blood brain barrier is opening up they're now getting through the issue is is that the immune defenses in the brain which are called the glial cells they're like the you know, they're the SAS, they're the special forces guys of the of the immune system, and they come out with cannons, right? So anything that starts coming through the blood brain barrier, you're going to get a massive kind of um, immune response to that, which creates a lot of inflammation and collateral damage. It's like a huge warfare goes on. So once you get brain, inf brain inflammation, you're into potentially sort of neurodegenerative conditions um, so this is what what we're seeing as you know as these emf frequencies have evolved and become either more powerful or more pulsating it's messing with a lot of these we're electrical beings right and it's messing with our electrical signals and opening up our defenses and leaving us defenseless to other things that may be around yeah wow. I think there's a whole podcast that could be explored on this simple topic of EMFs. Um, and I'd love to dive into it, but um, uh, unfortunately we're going to have to end this one here. Jenny, you're so amazing. Um, it's just incredible the, the wealth and the depth of knowledge that you're able to offer. 
I'm just so grateful for the path and journey that you've walked to now be in this culmination of, of this podcast um, and, to, and to share this conversation. So I just really want to thank you for your time, truly. Oh, my pleasure. I feel like, you know, all the explorations I've done over the years are worth it when I get to go, hey, this is exciting. <laughs> yeah. You want to share this with me? So thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, it's lo lovely. So happy to have you on here. And uh, yeah, I just wish you the best. And I, I can't wait till we get to hang out again. She <laughs> and a hike. Soon. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We'll definitely <laughs> do that. Well, I'm just happy that you're here for the truth. And that's what it's about, you know? Whatever that may be. Yeah. So just about are you in resonance with it or not that's your yeah. truth right yeah absolutely cool. um jenny where can people find you and reach out to you if they want to work with you um so you can check out my website which is jenny morton j-e-n-n-i-e-m-o-r-t-o-n.com um you can contact me via there i'm not on social anymore because having as i work with people who have problems with that i decided i have to practice what i preach yep. plus i was kind of not too excited by the direction they were taking so i've moved away from that um i'm envious so freeing I yeah can't, i can't yeah. tell you yeah and it, it it's not the end of the world you know yeah no no yeah. followers i've got if i've got one person that wants to chat and work you know i'm happy <laughs> i don't need cool. thousands <laughs> i love it all right awesome. guys thank you so much for listening to here for the truth this is jenny morden we're going to put all the details in the show notes be sure to check her out and we'll see you next time. Take care. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean.